Hi everyone and thanks for joining. My name's Una. Um, I'm part of the Abolitionist Futures Network. I'm going to start just by handing over to Jody, who's co-hosting this call with me. Um, but just wanted to say hi because I'm going to pop up later on the call. <laughs> Didn't want it to be totally random. But I'll hand over to Jody now. Hi everyone, um, I'm Jodie, um, welcome, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, I'm also part of the Abolitionist Futures Network and we are a network focused on abolitionistical education and movement building. So before I give you all a quick fire Abolition 101 and a rundown of the event, um, I just wanted to start with um, a plug of the TWT Supporters Network. So we know that we're living in very tough financial times at the moment um, and content like this, this call tonight is always going to be free of charge to everyone. However, if you think that calls like this are important in this time of crisis and uncertainty and are secure financially, then I would um, advise you to consider supporting TWT. Um, the coronavirus crisis poses a threat to independent grassroots organisations like TWT. If you're able to donate £5 a month, it would make a huge difference in enabling TDBT to scale up and sustain their political education work. Um, so you can sign up at theworldtransformed.org slash support. Um, so that's theworldtransformed.org slash support. And I'll also pop the link in the chat right now. Oh, it's already there. Great. <laughs> okay, cool. So, as I said, before I give you a rundown of who we've got speaking tonight, um, I'm going to attempt to give you a super quick 101 on prison abolition. So, prison, uh, prison abolition is the idea that we can create and live in a world without institutions like prisons, immigration detention centres and secure settings. Um, and prison abolition questions the idea of prisons as a permanent fixture in all of our lives and the idea that we cannot imagine a world without prisons. And we do this by having a kind of historical understanding of our criminal justice system and acknowledging that prisons were invented as a means of social control. So by thinking about prison abolition, we seek to open up the whole system and question what we mean by justice and what we want to achieve when we think about justice and also what we mean by harm, rather than thinking solely about who has committed crime I think it's super helpful to think about abolition and how it's different to reform. So when we think about prison reform, that's often limited to kind of changing the inner workings of a system. And it's it kind of taps into the notion that prisons can be humane and they can be healthy. And if we just adopt the most appropriate reforms, then prisons will work. Um, whereas abolitionists and abolitionist thinking tends to just acknowledge that prisons have, have, have never been good <laughs> and um, we kind of think about this in terms of non-reformist reform so reforms that do not expand the scope and the size of the criminal justice system um, and can be seen as sort of quick wins to make the immediate situation better so an example of this can be maybe decriminalisation so decriminalising non-payment of council tax and TV licence, for example, that, that does kind of send people to prison, and maybe decriminalising sex work, or both of those things would bring the prison population down. Um, 
and other abolitionist strategies include opposing the construction of new prisons, improving access to community services like mental health care, youth centres, education, housing, um, and thinking about of new ways of dealing with interpersonal violence within our communities through through kind of transformative justice means. Um, and also just fighting, fighting against inequalities based on class, race, ability, gender, and sexuality. Um, and all this feeds into of society that looks beyond prisons and the violence of the criminal justice system. And particularly in the context of COVID-19, where the callousness of our prison system has been brought to light as we see those inside being locked down for 23 hours a day with severely limited contact with friends and families um, and experiencing a lack of adequate healthcare and basic sanitation facilities. And even outside of prison walls, we've seen principles of mutual aid come to the fore, and we've seen a real clear vision for what an abolitionist future may look like, where communities are coming together to create new systems and structures that enable people to live healthy, safe lives in a way that is not structured, is not linked to structures of punishment. So that was a very quick 101. Um, and tonight's online event marks the launch of Futures Reading Group. I'm going to be offering you the tools and the knowledge you need to get started with your own groups where you can read and discuss key abolitionist texts. And Una is going to provide more information on that end. Um, and this evening, we've got some great speakers. Each of them will be kind of giving us a sense of what the COVID-19 crisis shows about the criminal justice system and how an abolitionist approach can support the left in, in responding to COVID-19. Um, and I'll let each speaker give a more detailed introduction of, of themselves and the work that they do. But just to run through, my be here is Becca Hudson, who is a creative producer and researcher. Her research focuses on prisons, health and empire, and she works on a number of youth-focused projects in London and also organises with Fuck Boris. Um, we're hearing from Kushal Sood, who is a solicitor based in Nottingham. He's currently working to protect life by getting individuals released from prison and collaborating with activists to challenge the discriminatory concepts of risk used throughout the criminal justice system. And last but not least, we've got Lisa and Elliot from the Instagram account Blue Bag Life. And Blue Bag, Bag Life shares um, personal experiences and other ex people's experiences of addiction. Um, and after we've heard all of the speakers, there's going to be a Q&A with the audience, um, followed by a short discussion in breakout groups. So um, if you think of any questions you'd like to ask people on the panel, then please leave them in chat. Um, and we'll have those at the end. So I think that's everything. But Una, please add in if I've forgotten anything um, before we move to Becca, I think. That's great. That's everything I had on my list. Great. Over to you, Becca. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Um, hi, I'm Becca. Uh, as Jodie said, I most of the work that I do around prison is um, working with young people whose lives are impacted by the criminal justice system. Uh, I've been asked to talk about what the government's response to COVID-19 tells us about the function of the criminal justice system. So I guess I'll just take a couple of minutes to think about what that response has been in a really general sense. Um, so I think overall, and this is not just um, people who are affected by the criminal justice system, but across the whole of our society, we've seen severe and mass state abandonment of communities 
um, huge incompetence in the provision of things like PPE um, and testing and a real unwillingness to protect life, whether that's bringing in a lockdown or bringing in enough tests. Um, that's then been paired increasingly with a blaming or minimizing people's deaths as their own fault or somehow uh, a result of their kind of bad behavior or that they were already vulnerable in some way that they were predisposed to premature death. Um, and alongside that, we've seen a scaling up of really intrusive, harmful and destructive interventions that often actually are counter to sort of public health common sense on the part of prisons and policing in particular. So this kind of duality of, uh, of abandonment and this kind of intrusive and, intrusive and destructive um, criminal justice response is really acute in places where the state is responsible for or has particular statutory duties of care. So care homes is one example. Um, we've seen just yesterday that the Nightingale Hospital, this big flagship field hospital that the government produced in East London, um, has only treated 54 patients even though it had the capacity for 4,000. Meanwhile, 4,000 people have died in care homes. Um, so, and, and prisons are another example of where the state has a kind of uh, an obligation to treat people and to look after people's healthcare, and they fail in that um, on a chronic and catastrophic basis. Um, so before talking about prisons, I don't wanna talk in that much detail because I think the other speakers are gonna talk a little bit more about what that looks like on the ground. Um, but I think looking at the way that prisons and the police in particular have been used to enforce the lockdown can show us what this response has meant. So with policing, there was lots of real vague guidance around what the lockdown meant uh, and what police powers might mean in that context. And we saw this then very quickly, police forces across the country really liberally applied these rules. So in often quite bizarre and draconian ways, um, and these were often in ways which escalated existing kind of disproportion, disproportionate police response against certain groups. So particularly um, against black people, homeless people, people suffering from disabilities. Uh, a couple of kind of key examples that we've seen, there was a family who were attacked on the street in Manchester. Um, a man was going to help with his mom and he was taking something from his mom's house whilst also dropping off some shopping at his mom's house. Uh, and there was a really aggressive confrontation from the police who kind of came up with threatening other members of the estate who were watching the interaction, uh, pushed him, pushed his mom as well. Um, and Greater Manchester Police then apologized for this incident. Uh, we had just a couple of days ago, South Yorkshire Police who proudly released a statement um, that they had threatened housing association tenants with upcoming troubles with their tenancy for doing things like walking when they were wearing jeans because that wasn't considered appropriate attire for exercise um, and eating egg custards in the park, which was also considered unacceptable and worth threatening someone's housing over. So these are just some of the examples of the way in which this response is actually completely counter to public health. So threatening somebody's housing during a pandemic is obviously not something which holds public health in high regard. Uh, police officers who aren't wearing any protective equipment coming into very close contact with members of multiple members of the public in one day uh, and having physical altercations with them is quite clearly a situation in which the virus could be transmitted. 
So these responses are not public health responses. Uh, and in fact, we're seeing huge state failure on a public health response while this ramping up of a state capacity for punishment, control and surveillance uh, seems to be going ahead, kind of full steam ahead. Um, so I think what this tells us about the criminal justice system more generally is that despite claims about the criminal justice being system being there to keep us, whoever us is safe, um, is that actually uh, it is chronically an incredibly unsafe and dangerous system. Um, one of the, I suppose, perhaps best exposed by COVID-19 is the way in which prison walls, which are supposed to separate the public from dangerous people, are not actually a barrier to the virus uh, in any way. They don't protect people in prison from it and they don't protect people in the community from it. The virus goes in and out of prisons. It spreads very, very fast in prisons because prisons are incredibly overcrowded and have very unsanitary conditions and healthcare is incredibly hard to access in that context. Um, and it's spread, as with the policing example, by police themselves who then become disease vectors and their behaviour then it continues to spread the virus throughout the community. So, I mean, one, I think, good example of what a public health response from a state might look like, just one tiny thing, um, is in Vietnam, where when they ask particularly vulnerable people to self-isolate, as our government has done as well, the Vietnamese government then made sure that food parcels of healthy, balanced meals were being delivered multiple times a day to people's doorsteps if they were self-isolating. So that's the kind of public health national, national infrastructure which we could be looking at and we could hope for instead of this increasing of a capacity to survey, control, punish and cause great harm to people. Um, and I think that, you know, as the left, we should be looking to how do we beef up an infrastructure of care and support as opposed to beefing up an infrastructure um, against working against care um, and, and often causing huge harm. Um, just to say, lastly, I think I'm coming to the end of my time, um, that this is a historical relationship uh, that we see happen over time. So often, particularly with kind of privatization and stripping away of state support, uh, as state services are often stripped away, eroded and privatized or ring fenced off with sanctions and means testing and inequality rises, invariably, not just in the UK, but across the world, you see the state expand its capacity in the areas of punishment, control, surveillance and violence. Um, and of course, particular targeted communities in this country that is often Black people, traveling, the traveling community, and increasingly since uh, 2001, the Muslim community, communities who have always been underserved by public services um, and given fewer resources are those which are over-policed and bear the brunt of state violence. So this relationship is an ongoing one, and we often see when support, care, and health is taken away, control and punishment is wrapped up. So that takes me to my kind of hope for why an abolitionist response is important for the left in responding to the current situation. Um, we understand that the austerity and scaling back of support which has led to such a huge and catastrophic public health failure is always undergirded by this increasing of uh, state punishment and control and that even in this very moment prisons for example are increasing their capacity so because the concern is that people might spread the virus when they share cells, prisons are using 
uh, buildings which were previously closed and even shipping containers to move some people who were sharing cells into a shipping container. And that is their kind of public health response. And it's very unlikely knowing how the prison system in the UK behaves, that after the crisis passes, whenever that might be, that those shipping containers will be closed or those buildings will be closed. Because the history of the UK criminal justice system teaches us that whenever they beef up capacity, they hold on to that, to that capacity and they fill it with more and more people impacting more individuals, families and communities. Um, I think just with this kind of government in particular, uh, and as Jodie said, I'm a member of a group called Fuck Boris, so I guess this is my Fuck Boris duty to say this, um, that we have to be really aware of the importance to this government of PR st stunts in general. So the Nightingale Hospital, many have now seen as a kind of really hollow PR stunt, and that the government knew that actually they were never going to have enough staff or the capacity to triage COVID cases into the Nightingale Hospital, but they just wanted to use it as an example of how well, oh, Britain can pull together and create a massive hospital in two weeks. Um, nowhere is their PR stunts more enthusiastic than in the area of law, law and order. From the very first day that Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street, he has talked about cracking down on crime, increasing police numbers, increasing prison capacity and increasing security in prisons. And this is a flagship part of how this government defines itself and how they kind of wish to see their legacy uh, and their restructuring of British society in this with law and order at the center of it. So I think as we go forward, we have to be really vigilant as the left as to how that plays out um, and yeah, how the government are kind of going to use that, particularly um, as concerns around kind of data sharing and surveillance with um, the sort of apps that they may be using uh, and the kind of crackdowns on public on a public who are not behaving properly and who are being blamed for spreading of the virus because of their bad behavior. We have to be aware um, of how this system may be wielded against more and more people. And very finally, I just wanted to say, you know, more importantly than all of that, there are hundreds of thousands of people and millions of families who are caught in the trappings of this system at the moment, um, who are really violently separated from one another uh, and put in huge danger. Uh, and this system continues to impoverish their lives and perhaps now more than ever threaten their very lives. Um, and it's a system which is wielded against communities at will. And as the governments, you know, in the coming days, they're making moves to maybe ease lockdown restrictions and, and strip support, like we've seen the wage coverage is now going to be scaled back. Um, and they continue to blame that badly behaved public. We have to be aware of how this infrastructure is going to be used to damage more lives and used against any movement worth its salt if we're not prepared to reckon with it uh, and the role that it plays in our society. Thank you. Thanks so much, Becca. Um, just before we pass over to Kushal, um, I just want to remind you all of the chat feature where you can pop your questions in, any questions you might have during the panel. Um, so if you're I don't know if I think you're probably, but if you're all on a laptop, it's like the, like the bottom of the screen. I'm not sure, home, but it's just like a little speech one and it should pop up. So if you just type your questions in at the end, thank you. Over to you. 
Hiya, can I check everyone can hear me okay? Right, okay, I'll uh, take that as a yes or crack on. Um, I've been given three questions to answer, um, I think quite similar to those that were given to uh, Becca. And I'm going to be coming at it from a slightly different angle um, and be making extensive reference to uh, one of my clients uh, called Roy. Um, there's a judgment in the High Court that was published um, about a week and a half ago um, that what I'm going to describe is a, a build-up to essentially. Um, so the first question I've been asked is the extent to which the Ministry of Justice are attempting to protect life during uh, this pandemic. And we know what their broad aims are from the published guidance that we've seen. Um, the first published guidance we saw appear was on the 13th of March, and it advised visitors to prisons that they should stay at home rather than visit if they themselves were experiencing any um, symptoms of coronavirus. Two days before that, my client, Roy, uh, was being written about by his GP. The GP had written to uh, the prison authorities to express alarm, essentially. Uh, although this was not even mentioned in the eventual court judgment, which I'll come on to shortly, um, what was written is a matter of public record, um, and it bears repeating. Um, the GP said, and I quote, with the impending threat of coronavirus, I am concerned that our application for Mr. Davis's compassionate release is considered as a matter of urgency. Not only am I concerned that he is most unlikely to survive if he were to become infected, but I'm also concerned by the fact he is requiring so many unscheduled admissions to hospital. Uh, in the last three weeks, he has been admitted on three occasions. The fourth admission was only prevented as a result of my being in the prison at the time of the crisis. The prisoner who is going frequently between the prison and hospital will increase the risk of transmission to the rest of the prison population and also his escorting officers. Uh, and that's the end of the quote. And you heard Becca speak before me about how prisons aren't an isolated environment, they're a porous environment. And I think that uh, quote that I've just read from the GP illustrates that. Uh, and it illustrated it to the prison authorities quite some time ago uh, now. It was written on the 11th of March, which was two days, as I said, prior to the first published guidance which made vague recommendations for family members. And it was only two days later that I received that uh, extract from the GP. Um, inevitably, I hope you'll all agree, uh, we made an out-of-hours application to the High Court as soon as we saw that uh, note from the GP to have Roy released, or in the alternative, to be assessed for a compassionate release. Now, I should say at this point that um, our efforts to have Roy compassionate release had been going on for some time before uh, this. Uh, another event maybe we can delve into the sort of meaningless and reductive way that life expectancies are uh, assessed by the Ministry of Justice. But for now, its relevance is uh, as follows. We've had over the last 10 months or so various estimates ranging from 18 months to three months um, in terms of how long uh, the authorities assess, clinicians assess that Roy is going to live. 
Um, the latest estimate, which says that Roy has um, nine to 18 months to live, so quite a broad range, uh, suggests that being in a Category C prison in which Roy feels unsafe and racially discriminated against whilst he's terminally ill and otherwise severely immunocompromised uh, has improved his life expectancy. So the sheer stupidity of uh, that suggestion um, is perhaps why uh, what prompted the clinician who made the estimate to emphasise that it was, and I quote him when he says it was extremely imprecise. Uh, by a statistician I've spoken to since we received that latest estimate has made it clear that it's much easy, much easier rather, to estimate um, the life expectancy of groups than it is of uh, individuals. Yet for almost a year, as we've been battling with the Ministry of Justice, um, it was this concept of life expectancy expressed as a date range that the Ministry of Justice has held as the main reason for not assessing him at all for compassionate release. So in a sense, coming back to the, the question, uh, the question of uh, what the Ministry of Justice is doing to protect life can be answered very directly. Uh, you might say that they zealously protect their right to enjoy holding people captive until they can be convinced that they have less than two months to live. In Roy's case, he was told he had three to six months to live in February. Uh, there's been no correspondence uh, between the local authority and uh, probation to plan for his release, um, as they've always been bound to do under the Care Act. So they don't even prepare to release an individual when they hit that already somewhat bonkers uh, two-month mark. Hitting that mark is a signal for them to start planning, which means uh, more delays for the dying person uh, in prison. And I'm digressing slightly because um, the position that I described there uh, was persisted with until the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Our out-of-hours application that I mentioned earlier, which was made by Philip Daly at number five uh, chambers, and the subsequent pressure that was put on by Leslie Thomas QC, that it forced them into making a decision in light of the pandemic. One of the reasons for this was that you can't say how long someone has to live in a pandemic. Uh, as it's subject to too many variables. We've established how useless the concept of life expectancy is already outside of a pandemic. So we're in kind of chocolate teapot territory when we're looking at how useful it is today in the context of an actual pandemic. Um, the decision that we've been forced, um, that we've forced uh, on the Ministry of Justice came on the 2nd of April and suddenly refused uh, Roy's release. The judgment, which is available uh, online, uh, provides an account of what happened next. We have now been placed on what's the legal equivalent of the naughty step, to be honest. Um, the court held that we ought not to have challenged the refusal, as we were able to apply for a temporary release. I have said a little bit on Twitter about this, but I think the less said about it, the better. What I can bring you all up to date on uh, is the latest position, which is that the Secretary of State told us yesterday that we have a mid until midnight tonight to make submissions on Roy's behalf uh, as a decision is going to be taken on whether or not he's going to be temporarily released tomorrow. 
These new opportunities to apply for temporary release are supposed to reflect how seriously the Ministry of Justice are attempting to protect life during the pandemic. We know uh, what the criteria are. People at the end of their sentences, those who are pregnant with babies and clustered extremely vulnerable, can, if they're not otherwise excluded, apply for temporary release. Which brings me to the second question I've been asked to uh, answer, which is, what does the Ministry of Justice's response to COVID-19 tell us about the function of the prison system? Now, I know uh, Lisa and Elliot are going to be looking at what measures have been put in place from the accounts they've gathered, which you've not seen a vital reading. Um, I'll concentrate on the response from central government. In their skeleton argument on Roy's case, uh, Treasury Council, there are four of them, uh, were very keen to emphasise how burdensome it is for the state to protect life. Although the rights to life and for protection from degrading treatment are what we call inviolable rights, so they're not subject to express caveats, um, case law has established that the duty is uh, to protect life is subject to two subcategories, if you like, uh, a systems duty and an operational duty. In arguing that the duty to protect life in the operational sense was subject to a requirement of reasonableness, the defendant revealed a great deal about the function of the uh, prison system. In making an argument about reasonableness, they said that their duty to protect life had to be balanced against risk, to use their term, which Roy posed should uh, he be released uh, in order to protect his life. I've spoken at length, as of many others before me, uh, about this concept of risk, and uh, Becca alluded to it in her talk. Um, and I've thought about it for many years, not least in the face of evidence that's given by officials at parole hearings, uh, which really seeks to twist the knife in um, to uh, prisoners who are already fighting to be heard in at the end of a sentence or in the latter stages of a sentence in which they've been largely ignored. Um, I can say without hesitation that the function of the prison system is to keep this concept of risk alive uh, without thinking about it in the context of what's been missing or even um, too present in the life of the person that that risk is uh, being ascribed to. Um, people who relish describing themselves as being on the front line love to create an illusion of being pragmatic. You might hear them say things like, uh, it's all very well, you abolitionists with your heads in the clouds, but we're just trying to keep people safe. Um, well, allow me to trade metaphors, if I may. Uh, abolitionists don't have their heads in the clouds. They're involved in real projects, day to day, to puncture this idea of risk. What these so-called frontline folks are doing, on the other hand, is looking through a magnifying glass at a piece of rubble, wondering what it did to find itself there. All risk assessment and analysis is geared at blaming the individual without looking at circumstance. And the risk-oriented approach that we've seen from the government, egged on by some campaigns, has been devastating for, for Roy. Not only did the Secretary of State 
mislead the court about Roy's offences, casually turning attempted robbery into robbery and adding details seemingly borrowed from tabloid newspaper versions, but they expressed concern about the risks posed by Roy now, despite him being in a wheelchair and increasingly weak. We have for a year urged Secretary of State not to perpetuate tropes about men like Roy, about them being aggressive when ignoring their vulnerabilities and other complexities. This, we said, is completely dehumanising. What do I mean by men like Roy? Well, Roy is a black Caribbean man who offended after re-emergence of uh, bowel cancer and after becoming far less prolific in his offending as he became older. Um, he had lost two parents um, whilst he's been in custody and has been placed in the invidious position of having to forego bladder removal surgery, which means that now his cancer is inoperable. None of which was mentioned in the court judgment that's now been published. And all of which was proactively avoided by the defendant, the Secretary of State, in their correspondence with us, leading to the decision we ended up challenging. What does all this tell us about the function of the prison system? Well, we have, from the outset, presented ample information uh, about the risks posed to people with voice background on the prison estate. We cited the Bromley briefings. Uh, we made reference to studies on allostatic load and weathering, which I can post some links to later if people are interested. Uh, black men, and as Becker said, increasingly Muslim uh, men, are disproportionately subjected to disciplinary restrictions. And that's true on the women's estate as well. And prisoners must not be viewed as a homogenous group when it comes to healthcare outcomes. We know that the pain of black people is ignored. Some of us aren't scratching our heads wondering why white people are surviving this pandemic more comfortably than black and other non-white groups. Which brings me to the final question. I hope I'm not going too far over time. Um, so it follows from what I've said essentially that about the law. Um, insofar as the law is seen from court judgments, uh, there's no evidence of uh, judges or the judiciary or anyone in the law really <laughs> having an interest in abolitionist aims. I could cite uh, several judgments that I find of use in specific contexts to further clients' cases when I'm applying for parole or judicially reviewing various decisions, but none of them uh, really address the inherent toxicity of uh, prison. It would of course be ridiculous to expect authorities themselves to fall on their swords and concede that this institution they are keeping alive is a death machine with a track record since the 1700s, as Jody said, of uh, generating misery. They went in the opposite direction, actually, in Roy's case, and claimed that they were in an excellent position to protect life. I believe that some of them genuinely believe that. Um, again, not to mention what was uh, uh, made in the judgment of um, the fact that Roy was having to improvise um, disinfectant using a bottle uh, in his cell. So no mention was made of that in the uh, judgment, and he's still having to do that to this day. Um, 
courts in other jurisdictions have been bolder, for example, addressing the bias of forensic risk assessment tools against Indigenous prisoners in Canada. But even the idea of improving these tools, as others have uh, taught me, can't really be said to be an abolitionist aim. So that leads abolitionists to impose their projects as best as they can within frameworks of the law without reinforcing the law's aims itself. Um, I've been working with groups for several months to create support networks for people coming out of prison and with other experts who talk of rehabilitating people from the horrors of imprisonment rather than this much more cynical notion of rehabilitation which grounds itself in correcting deviancy um, in inverted commas. Um, in Boyce's case, we've already had an undertaking from an inspirational mutual aid group to provide culturally sensitive support on release, which his family and he welcomed with open arms. Um, I hope now is that the Secretary of State can simply bring themselves to confront the realities of Roy's uh, frailty and the wealth of support available. And as I said, they're due to make their decision tomorrow. Um, so thank you. Great, thank you, Kushal. Um, and now we're going to move on to um, Lisa and Elliot from Blue Bag Life. And again, just a reminder, keep sending in your questions. <laughs> Over to you guys. Thank you. Cheers. Hi, everyone. Hello. Can you hear us all right? Sweet. I'm Elliot. This is my partner, Lisa. Um, and together we run the Instagram account, Blue Bag Life, also on Twitter, uh, which is basically a platform to tell stories of addiction, prison, mental health and support, um, which has all been a part of our story. Um, I served just under three years, got out about a year ago. And I was quite active on the online prison support forums run by loved ones of people in prison and I'm still in contact with all of those people and they regularly update me telling me what's going on in each prison. Um, also we run some workshops going into prisons as well based on people's stories. Uh, on, the, on our actual website, um, on our Instagram account, people tell stories for a long period of time. Um, on the Instagram account, we've been getting into a bit of trouble recently um, <laughs> because we, we have been calling out certain prisons um, and getting responses from those prisons, which is funny because some of the solicitors haven't been able to get responses from the prisons, but we've been asked to remove certain comments. Um, so we're tackling that a bit, we've, we've kind of tackling that we're tackling that a bit more carefully these days and, and rethinking how we're going to work that Twitter account. Yeah, so we've been asked a few questions as well to think about. Um, the first one being what measures have been put in place in prisons? I mean, it's, it's no secret that, you know, people in prison in this country certainly spend massive amounts of time in their cells and that seems to have been exacerbated by the current uh, crisis with COVID-19. You know, in most prisons, it's been reported at 23 and a half hours, which tends to be kind of, you know, uh, the figure that's thrown about when we're talking about extreme amounts of lockdown, which is a huge amount of time to spend behind your door in a day. Um, I mean, I've experienced those amounts of time in prison in the normal run of things. So, yeah, it's, it only makes sense. That it's going to be more apparent in this current time. 
Um, People are having to choose between um, going to the shower or a phone call in a lot of cases. So if they are allowed out of the cell for 30 minutes, it's a choice between your loved one or being clean, mm -hmm. which um, obviously that, mm -hmm. that should not be the case. And in some prisons, it's even been, you know, days without being let out of their cells. And that's an especially, especially a problem in prisons that don't have in-cell sanitation, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Um, another measure that seems to have been put in place or, or something that has been proposed has been for in-cell education packs to be given to people in prison. Um, obviously, with the stresses that are placed on all departments working within prisons, the education departments, addiction services, healthcare, um, I don't know if there's been much of that that's actually been achieved, but that was something that was proposed to have been put into place. And obviously that's nothing to do with people in education. Um, they're, they're trying to get together new ways of working. I mean, I've been talking to soft touch arts um, who have been trying to get art materials into prisons in the Midlands. And so it's like, how do you actually do that under a pandemic where people don't want to pass objects to each other? It, that's quite difficult to, to navigate. Um, also, selected prisons have been um, testing the video calling apps, which you may be aware of. Um, uh, Purple Visits is the main one. There's lots of examples where uh, people are being told that they'll be getting these, um, but they're still waiting for the equipment to come through or told that, no, you can't have it because um, the lockdown is going to be finished soon. But also, obviously, we're very wary of video calling coming into these systems um, because, yeah, basically, if you implement something, does it stay? Um, and if it does stay, then will it will in-person contact cease? Because uh, that has been the case in many American prisons. Um, and we, we obviously wouldn't want that to replace being able to touch someone. When I used to touch Elliot's face when he was in the prison visits hall, even though we were shouted at after a certain amount of time, it still meant that we could have that sense of calm. And it, it seems logical as well, um, you know, with the current government and in these times of austerity and cutbacks that anything that's gonna save on staff numbers and, and it's gonna save costs within the prison institution, you know, if it works a bit too well at the moment, then yeah, we're, we're really concerned that it's gonna be something that is potentially going to take the place of face-to-face -face visits. Yeah, and obviously they're going to be collecting data at this time. All people who have loved ones in prisons are going to go, this is amazing, I really need to see my loved one right now. Um, so this really works. And so that's the data that will be collected. Although people who have had these calls so far said that they're, they're really awful quality. Um, so yeah, the very people pushing these calls are the loved ones of people in prisons. They're getting everyone to sign petitions and all sorts. Um, and they will be ultimately the ones that don't benefit from this in the long term if it does, uh, if it is implemented uh, full time. Mm. So another measure that has been attempted to be implemented, they were talking at the start of this crisis about um, using mobile phones, designated mobile phones on the wings with many people in prison not being able to access the wing phones, not being able to get out of their cells. Um, it was actually rolled out in Coldingley, I think, uh, amongst other prisons. Um, but apparently from talking directly to people in the prisons where these mobile phones were implemented, they were no good. There was really poor signal and no one actually wanted to use them. And they serve little to no purpose um, just because the quality was so poor. And there were about two given out on a whole wing. 
So we're getting mixed mixed messages from uh, lots of different people. So where are we? Hold on a second. Um, oh yeah, so I spoke to someone yesterday and she said, I said, what have you been promised that you actually haven't got? They promised nothing, he got nothing, but he's used to nothing. So I don't think it bothers him anymore. So, I mean, they're just wait, they're always expecting, and when I say they, families of people, loved ones of people in prison, people in prison. Um, yeah, the, uh, restrictions on courts means families can't be present for hearings, sentences, etc. And although we understand that, uh, there needs to be some kind of understanding that that is a real tense moment for someone. So you're waiting by the phone for that call. You can't see that your, your loved one's face. Um, I don't know how, how that could be resolved, but mental health seems to be suffering as a result of, of those things. And understandably, the measures that are being implemented, the way they're having an effect on those in prison and their loved ones, you know, from talking to the loved ones of people that are inside, um, just general worries about mental health, addiction, um, self-harm. I read today that, you know, self-harm last year, I think the year till December was up 14%. And so we're at a crucial time now with increasing rates of self-harm and suicide. That and was before the lockdown. That, yeah, that was before this happened. So now, you know, for for these crucial services to be much more difficult to access than they would under the normal run of things, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite worrying. So imagine um, you're suffering with your mental health, uh, you're in your cell for that amount of time and then you're told by your partner that all videos of these officers dancing uh, are being played uh, and, and sent across online. Uh, really complicated dance routines which the officers say that they're practiced in their breaks but they are really complicated. I mean, I wouldn't be able to learn these dance moves in like two weeks. Um, and they went viral and because people want to stay anonymous usually, those supporting people, in uh, loved ones of people in prison, uh, then they're not even allowed to say, you know, this really upsets me because they don't want to step out and say anything. Supposedly this video is to boost, you know, the morale of these essential workers, of uh, prison staff. If I was in my cell and I knew that there was 50 prison officers outside doing the bloody Macarena or whatever else, and my cell bell was ringing. Men in Black was one of them. Yeah, 45 like minutes You're meant to be shooting aliens and, and protecting people, you know. <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah, just, you know, it, it just really frustrates me that so much time and focus can be put into boosting their morale when there's so obviously clear issues going on behind, behind these doors. Um, you know, prisons aren't designed to facilitate social distancing. You know, they aren't designed to cope with the effects of a crisis like this. And it's becoming very apparent that they are they are being disproportionately affected, you know, certainly in other countries. And now it's becoming apparent over here. If you step out of a prison cell door onto a landing, if it's a Victorian prison, for instance, um, you're going to have to step back into your cell in order to create two metres because there's not enough room on those landings to be able to create social distancing. So the perspectives and experiences of people that are in prison and their loved ones is really important to abolitionist work. Um, it's obvious, isn't it? And we care what's going on with these people because you know it's it's telling, and we only ever hear second or third hand accounts that have been you know biased or, or distorted to to kind of to align with public perception or, or perceived public perception. And so we directly speak to people that are serving prisoners we speak to their loved ones and it's the only way that we can get this raw information um, and try and build an accurate representation of what's going on and it might just seem anecdotal at the time but 
in my opinion, that's better um, because it is, you know, it's genuine stories. It's a lot of the time, I, a lot of the time I find out things from people in these, on these prison family forums, from my friends, before um, officers even uh, know about things. Officers will say, I didn't know this was happening. Uh, before MPs, definitely before the Prime Minister. Uh, these are the people who want to speak out, but journalists come and try and take their stories off of them. I mean, these are people who should be writing articles themselves. There should be prison wives, collectives and all sorts. But um, when I've spoken to journalists, they say this is too radical for, for us to take on. Mm, um, it's funny. Yeah. And so also, how do we know incidents are being monitored um, in the system? Um, comp one forms, you can talk about that for a second. I mean, from my experience, you know, being on the wing and being able to access comp one forms, like complaint forms, that can be a mission in itself sometimes. So the fact that people aren't leaving their cells for large amounts of time um, each day, I mean, I, I found it difficult to get a comp one form sometimes. Sometimes there weren't any left on the box. A lot of the time they, you know, the box would mysteriously become empty or they weren't followed up. So there's no way for us to monitor incidents that are going on or, or the voices of those that are affected by incidents. And the only way that we can do it is with this direct contact. Now, just recently, an example of the direct contact that we've had. Go on. Yeah, I was just going to say before we go on to that point, as, uh, and we will finish soon, um, that if we do hear these voices, and as I said before, and we do put them online, then we're contacted directly to say, can you take that offline because this is not true. So those voices are actually stifled all of the time anyway. Um, and our Twitter, we have been stifled. Individual establishments have tried to silence the things that we're doing, but one example of a success that we had recently was HMP Coldingly. Um, for those that don't know, it's one of the last remaining prison. I think there's five left in the country that don't have in-cell sanitation. Um, and it's actually, I think, four of the five wings at Coldingly don't have in-cell sanitation. So no toilets, no sinks, no washing facilities. Um, and a few weeks ago, from talking to actually someone that I know who's serving now in Coldingly, and lots of other people that we know as well. And a lot of other people in there as well. You know, we found out guys weren't leaving their cells for days at a time. They were being forced to defecate in buckets and urinate in bottles and sit with it in their cell or chuck it out the window. And they weren't able to access washing facilities. And what they've got encodingly is a queue system. So they have to press a buzzer to join a queue to be able to use communal toilets and washing facilities. And what was happening was, for whatever reason, the pandemic had imposed even tighter restrictions on the regime of the prison so that guys weren't leaving their cells for days at a time. Like I said, urinating, defecating in buckets. They were even given potties by the prison service. And, you know, that that's not conducive to any form of modern society in any way. What I will say before we, before we close this is um, we got in contact with a mum of someone who had some, uh, a son in Coldingley, and she said, I've got a group of mums together. I'm about, I'm, I think she said 65. Uh, what do we do about this? And they started speaking out together. They started writing letters. They started forming a group together. And she said, we're on fire for this. I don't know what's happened, but we, you know, I don't care if my son leaves, I'm going to make this happen. This is inhumane. And, and I was like, yeah, go on, this bunch of, bunch of ladies. I'm sorry, I don't like the word ladies, women. Um, getting together and, and joining forces, and that's what we all need to do, right? Mm. So off the back of that unity between people in Coldingly, their loved ones and, and us, um, actual 
actually contact with journalists, we managed to implement regime or influence the implementation of regime changes in Coldingley. Um, and within about 24 hours of the story going out onto BBC News and other outlets, um, you know, we were talking to guys that were in Coldingley, they were saying that there's just been a complete overhaul. Um, in addition to that, their cells were getting spun because the officers worked out they had phones in there and stuff, but equally um they said it was worth it they said it was worth it because they were getting out they were able to use showers sinks toilets so this direct contact with people in prison for us has been the only way we have been able to get an accurate representation and also implement changes um and that's kind of the foundation for everything that we do just that direct communication yeah um we have been told that we're stepping a bit too close to the line um for the workshops we deliver in prisons um but no one ever told us what the line was so we haven't been trained and, and we just have a we, we just have a first for um helping people to speak out so that's just a small portion of stuff that you know we're, we're aware of that's been going on in these establishments during this crisis but like i said earlier it's difficult to get an accurate uh, portrayal or representation of what's really going on um, but you know we've done our best. We can all work together to continue. Thank you Lisa and Elliot. Um, we're going to move on to a quick Q&A. We're running slightly behind time but I think we've got um, time for a couple of questions. Um, just before we do a quick reminder to go and follow Lisa and Elliot at Blue Bag Life on Instagram and also on Twitter and you can find out a lot more about what is happening inside the, uh, the prison system at the moment. Um, so we've had some questions on the chat. If you've got any more questions, please post them. Um, I'm going to pick out a question from uh, an, an essay that Jacob has sent us. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you want to answer this one, Becca. This is a question about um, the use of behavioural economics. Um, so particularly within the government response to coronavirus, we seem to have seen this focus on individual behaviour and that kind of being used to drive policy decisions. Um, so Becca, can you talk a, bit, a, a little bit about um, what the significance of that is? Yeah, I mean, I think in, the, in terms of this conversation, um, I guess it's characterised a huge amount of the government response overall, which is basically to blame people for their own illness and then later their own deaths. Um, and you've seen this from the very beginning. I mean, you know, people started talking about Boris Johnson supposedly being this like really like laissez-faire liberal guy because he didn't want to institute a lockdown. Um, despite the fact that he's obviously extremely keen on like draconian law and order policy when he's issuing like increased stop and searches um, or like crackdowns on security in prison. But then people felt like it was an indication that he was in some way this kind of, you know, was committed to civil liberties. Um, and I don't think that's the case. But what we have seen is that from the very beginning, from the very first coronavirus case in the UK, individual uh, and family and community behaviour has been the kind of key focus of government advice, where they've just said, well, you should work from home really, prior to giving any kind of financial support to allow people to work from home. Um, and now that we're at a stage where we have tens and tens of thousands of people that have died, and they're talking about easing the lockdown, we're seeing that many people were quote unquote going to die anyway um, or were in some way vulnerable and this is particularly acute um, to 
otherwise targeted populations. So the massive um, disproportionality of BAME deaths, particularly amongst NHS staff, has been blamed in kind of media and government response on everything from a lack of vitamin D to uh, a commitment to working in the NHS, not as an occupation, but rather as a vocation. So black and Asian people working in the NHS supposedly work harder and put their lives more at risk just because it's a vocation for them. Whereas for white people, it's an occupation or they don't have enough vitamin D or they choose to live in overcrowded conditions or have unhealthy lifestyles. And these are the ways in which the government is with their kind of press strategy and their um, coronavirus response strategy are trying to erase all kinds of like collective responsibility um, and to completely pull the rug from under any kind of support that they could actually be giving um, to the entire country, to communities and families and individuals. So it immediately becomes your fault if you're sick, your fault if you choose not to work from home. And if you do pass away, then that is somehow because you were inherently weak or you had an unhealthy lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's characterized what they've done. And I think, you know, now that we're looking to the lockdown maybe being eased, they're going to be ramping up this kind of blaming of individual responsibility. And we know because we can look at the failure that, that the response has been in this country versus the success in other countries where they've had a more serious collective response that that's not how public health works so it's not like some science says that and we could follow it it patently does not work thank you Becca um we've got another question which I really like which kind of really gets at the heart of what is covered in the reading groups um which is about are we really saying no prisons are we actually saying we're going to get rid of all the prisons or do we need to retain them um for some people um i'm gonna say uh lisa or kashal or elliot please like give me a wave if you want to take it <laughs> all right kashal this one's for you do we really mean no prisons i'm gonna have to ask you to um answer this really really quickly and um chris you asked the question there's more information if you join the reading group. Well, yeah, I won't give a sort of abolitionist answer that um, I think JD was uh, a better place to give um, before and anything that would sort of encroach on any of the reading material you're looking at. But I can answer it as a lawyer and say I've never, ever been involved in a case where I've thought prison is the right place for this person. It's very easy to imagine an alternative. Um, these aren't utopian, uh, this isn't utopian thinking that um, we're engaged in when we're thinking about uh, what the alternative is. You can see it right in front of you. You can say, well, there's this guy, there's this person that they're able to liaise with on release, they can have a coffee with, there's this support group, there's this rehabilitation if they've got uh, drug dependency problems group that they're able to um, that they're able to avail themselves of. But probation are just sat there not looking at any of these things, you know. Probation have got their own ideas, they've got their own allegiances, they've got their own uh, organisations that they form partnerships with for commercial uh, reasons. And that's why the rates of recall are skyrocketing as they are, because we're not looking at what's in front of our nose. So to answer this guy's question, I'd say, yeah, every single person should be out of prison now. 
Thanks, Kishel. And obviously, yeah, there's the, um, that's kind of like the shortest possible answer. There's a lot of more discussion, a lot more information on that um, in the reading material. Um, I'm going to take one more question really, really quickly, because there's one about what kind of resistance and community organizing techniques are people experiencing and working? Um, and it'd be great if Lisa and Elliot, if you can just talk a little bit about how people are pushing back um, about what's going on in the prison system and what seems to have been effective so far. I know you already mentioned Coldingly. It'd be good to hear a bit more about that. Do you want me to start? Yeah, I think, um, well, really I'm seeing it starting from these online um, prison support groups um, from families and loved ones. I'm seeing a lot of people speaking out that wouldn't have spoken out before lockdown. And I think that's really important. Um, it's about getting people to speak out, knowing that there are certain journalists who just don't speak to. Uh, a lot of the people I speak to don't know uh, anything about media or, or certain agendas and this kind of thing so that would be good to have a bit more information for families about speaking out because everyone wants to grab them at the moment um, obviously prisoner solidarity network um, and raising funds to put into people's accounts and then I see the responses to that I see the responses but there's the need is so much greater than uh, the people who are donating at the moment. Uh, everyone's just saying, I didn't have enough money to put on his canteen because I'd lost my job and all of this kind of thing. Uh, so you can see the effects running along um, in, in a chain here. Well, I can because these are, are the private groups. Uh, obviously we can't go and protest or anything like that at the moment outside prisons. <laughs> Funny, because I did grab a megaphone um, as I left my work. Um, ready for lockdown just in, but, case. Just in <laughs> case but I haven't actually used it um yes yeah, so it's about groups coming together isn't it and if if we are getting together on zoom and 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 having these conversations then how is it that we're actually going to take action and that's what I'm interested in um even if it's very small actions in how are we going to change perceptions of pe how people are viewed in prison um we do that online as well. Online is a, is a powerful place at the moment. Um, this is where groups are forming and growing bigger and bigger. Um, how can we do this every day, just a little bit, so people don't feel absolutely bombarded? Um, just simple concepts that we can start talking about. Um, yeah, I think that's really important to, to build those communities online. Yeah. yeah, just build those networks of, you know, people from all kinds of different backgrounds with all kinds of different connections, not just within uh, the system, but within society itself. You know, I, you know we've, we've all got different worlds of knowledge, haven't we? And yeah, Lisa nailed it. You know, the more connections that we've got and the more conversations we're having, the more aware we become. And yeah, potentially we can achieve anything that we want to. Yeah, there could be some group that says, um, free all prisoners, um, as, and another audience won't be ready for that yet. So you're like, how can I deal with this? Or what is the audience that's in front of me? I've got a lot of um, mums at home who are not used to anything to do with prison. How is it do we start introducing it to, to our audiences? And what are those audiences who we're speaking to? It's, it's important that we're aware of that. If that, I mean, there's loads more, but. <laughs> No, that's, that's a great short answer to that. Um, so for the next bit of this event, we've mentioned the reading groups a lot um, and the reading list. What we wanted to do right now is try and kind of get 
all of you started right here right now um so our plan is to on the twt website um there is a link to the reading list um as well as the facilitation guide so it's five weeks of um reading group sessions that we've put together Obviously you can take these and set up your own groups and run with them, that's great. But what we're gonna do also is we're gonna um, send out a Zoom link each Wednesday, Wednesday evening at half six for the next five weeks that everyone is welcome to join. And we're gonna split that down into smaller breakout groups on the Zoom calls so that um, people are able to discuss the readings. So if you don't wanna organize your own um, reading groups then you can join our weekly ones. Um, but we're really, really looking for some enthusiastic people to volunteer to facilitate um, these breakout group discussions um, each week. So what we're going to do right now um, is to put you into breakout groups for the, just a few minutes. You can introduce yourselves um, to the other people in the breakout group, maybe chat a bit about how you found the event tonight. And then see if there's anyone who's in your breakout group who might be um, up for being a facilitator for these group discussions in the weekly reading groups. You don't have to be really experienced. You don't have to know loads about abolition. We've done a guide um, to help you facilitate discussion. And also people from abolitionist futures are available for one-to-one -one chats for guidance on facilitation. If, you, if you're thinking that's something I'm interested in, but I'm not massively confident. Um, so yeah, we're gonna put you in the breakout groups. Please try and cajole each other into volunteering to facilitate. Um, and you'll have about five, five to eight minutes in those breakout groups. Um, Interesting.
Hi everyone, welcome back. I can see everyone slowly coming back. I hope functioning conversation that was a bit experimental um, and maybe a little bit chaotic. <laughs> um, I'm just going to wait a minute and make sure we've got everyone back. Hi everyone, welcome back. Um, <laughs> apologies, there were some technical hitches with that attempt at the breakout groups. I don't know if anyone managed to have a proper conversation or not. Um, we're gonna, um, sorry, just give me one second. Oh, some conversations managed to happen. That's good to know. Okay. Well done to those who did. Apologies to those who um, didn't manage. We won't give it another go because there's not that much time on the call but um if anyone i hope that some of you are interested in getting involved in the reading groups we're going to be sending out um a link to everyone who joined this call um very shortly to allow you to join another call next wednesday to do session one of discussion um discussing the readings um so join that call if you're interested in just coming to chat about week one of the readings. If there is anyone who would be up for being a facilitator of one of those breakout groups in next week's reading group, we're going to post a link to a WhatsApp chat um, in the Zoom chat. That's coming shortly and you can join that if you're interested. We can send you some more information, we can send you some guidance on facilitating and you can also kind of have a one-to-one -one chat if you're interested in that. Um, so hopefully we found some people who are up for doing that. We're really excited about seeing some more of you to chat about the readings. Um, thank you for joining the call tonight. Thank you to all of our speakers. Um, before we go, I'm going to just quickly plug the TWT Supporters Network again. Um, as you've mentioned, this is a really tough financial situation for loads and loads of people. Um, so TWT are making sure that all of these um, calls and the political education they're providing is free of charge. Um, so if you've got anything to spare to Chuck towards TWT, recognizing that the calls like this are really important in times of crisis and the organizing and the education they provide us with, um, then 
if you're able to donate five pounds a month, it would be a massive difference in helping TWT to scale up and sustain this, um, particularly after they've been so, so impacted by the current situation. So you can sign up at theworldtransform.org forward slash support. That's theworldtransform.org forward slash support. The link is also in the chat. Um, so thank you everyone for joining.